Well, hi, Mr. Money. You remember our learning machine over there? Well, sure, that's a great gadget. What's it going to teach us today, Mr. Money? I'll turn it on and you'll see. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast. I'm Austin Knight. And I'm Matthew Housebarby. Today, we've got a particularly interesting guest that we'll be interviewing during this episode, where we'll be discussing financial inclusion, lending with Bitcoin, and a slightly new take on the ICO model, which is super interesting. Yeah, that's right. So today, we're going to be talking with Radko Ulbricht from Bitbond. Radko is the founder and CEO there, and they're the first global marketplace lender for business loans. And... The thing that caught both me and Austin's eye, so Bitbond are based out of Germany. They're a regulated body and they leverage blockchain technology to connect credit-worthy borrowers with individual and institutional lenders. They're actually using Bitcoin to facilitate lending through loans, etc. And the way that they do this is, is really cool. It really is. Just before we get started, though, this is something that we're starting to introduce as a pattern in our podcast, but it's super important to us. We want to ask a small favor from you. If you haven't already, we'd really appreciate it if you took a couple minutes out of your day to leave us a rating and a written review, if you can, within iTunes or whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. We're trying to reach as many people as possible with a podcast, and your reviews actually help us a ton with gaining that level of visibility. Yeah, and also don't forget, like you can get in touch with Austin and I by emailing us at any time, right? We have always responded to any of the emails that have came through. We've had some really nice messages, interesting questions. So yeah, don't be a stranger. You can email us here at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. So make sure any questions, feedback, things you want to know, things you want to send our way, Drop us an email at any time. We'll always try to get back to you. If you don't, you can call us out on social media and give us a bad name. That's that's all good with us. <laughs> all right, uh, let's do it. So it's my pleasure to welcome Radko Ulbricht, founder and CEO of Bitbond, to the podcast. Welcome, Radko. Thank you for having me. Hi there. So Radko, why don't you start us off by giving our listeners an overview of who you are and how you got involved in the crypto space. Tell us about yourself. Sure. So I'm Radko. I'm the founder and CEO of Bitbond. Bitbond is the first global lending platform for small business loans, and we use cryptocurrencies for payment processing. And that's also how I got into crypto. I used to work as a management consultant, but I knew always that at some point I would like to start my own company, preferably in the financial services space, because that's where my personal expertise is. And I saw that online lending is a phenomenon that I found fascinating and I wanted to start my own lending platform specifically for small business loans. And I had the goal to create a platform where literally everyone who has access to the internet can apply for a loan. And these loans can be funded by people from all across the world. And by having that idea, I saw that one of the challenges in order to start such a platform was how do we get money efficiently from A to B across borders, across continents? And that was in 2013. And I remembered that about a year ago before I started Bitbond, a good friend of mine told me about this internet currency called Bitcoin. And when I was talking to a relatively large number of banks about how we could 
you know, run his lending platform and, and send money across borders. And it all went nowhere because the costs were too high or many of the banks simply said, well, this doesn't work anyway. Then I remembered Bitcoin and I thought, well, let's take a closer look at that and perhaps this internet money will help us. <laughs> and so I I took a couple of days and was reading only about Bitcoin and the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I got about the concept. And then actually it turned out that Bitcoin was a way to replace the banking system in terms of payments infrastructure. And so those were my first days with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Wow. So th that must have, that feels like a giant leap of faith that you took relatively early on. Was it, was it just yourself that founded Bitbond? Did you have to convince other people into your crazy idea along the way? We were a two-person team at the beginning, but ourselves, we were not so sure whether this is actually going to work. And I'm not even talking about whether this is going to work as a business, but purely on a technical level, whether the platform actually will be functional. <laughs> so, yeah. And then also my co-founder, he, he left the company quite quickly, not because of Bitcoin, but more because startup really wasn't his kind of thing and uh, everything was very unstable at the beginning but then ultimately i found other people who got really excited about this project and we made it work okay so maybe you could elaborate a little bit more around like how this specifically works so you talked about the challenges of sending money and in particular borrowing money and Bitcoin you saw as one potential solution to this, but how in practicality does that actually work within Bitbond right now? Sure. So in general, let's assume we have one borrower from one country. Let's pick Argentina just as a random example. Mm -hmm. And now this person wants to borrow $10,000, which is around about the average loan amount on our platform at the moment. And then this loan gets funded by 100 people from all across the world. Now, we need to get the money from all the countries where the investors are to Argentina, where the borrower lives. And of course, everyone could send a conventional wire transfer, but that would be very expensive because if someone from the US sends money to Argentina, someone from Germany sends money to Argentina, someone from Australia sends money to Argentina, then these are all transactions that are in itself relatively small and at the same time carry relatively high fees. And it takes multiple days until the money arrives there. And now what we have done is that on our platform, you can pay in with local fiat money because for a lot of countries around the world, we have integrated with exchanges and we show you a bank account number where to send money to. And then in the background, this money gets converted into Bitcoin. Then you have Bitcoin in your account with Bitbond. You fund the loan. The borrower withdraws the money. And then the money, and in this case it's Bitcoin, gets withdrawn to a local exchange. Exchange converts Bitcoin into local currency and pays out the local currency to the borrower. So for a lot of countries around the world, we have integrated this with effectively bank account transactions. However, the conversion happens locally. And that's a lot faster and a lot cheaper than if you were sending money across the conventional banking system across countries. 
And typically, what are the speed increases that would be involved in that? Is there like a typical increase that you would see based on the more traditional system? So typically, these transactions, including the banking payout, happen within one day. While if we were sending the money through the conventional banking system, where SWIFT is the underlying technology platform that is being used for interbank settlement, transactions between different continents can easily take five days or even more. So that's the speed increase that we can realize. And in terms of the cost improvement, a typical transactions through SWIFT can easily be three to five percent costs and fees of the transaction. And we can reduce that to one to sometimes two percent, depending on which currency pair uh, we are talking about. So it's a significant increase in speed and it's a significant reduction in cost. Right. And I'm assuming those cost reductions are kind of passed on or at least not taken away then from the lender itself. Yes, they are directly passed on to to both sides of the transaction to the borrower and the investor. Okay, great. And one other question on this, I, I'm, I'm learning a bunch about this right now. It's uh, fascinating. And you, you mentioned the final piece there around Bitcoin is processed through and then is exchanged into a local currency. Is, is there the option to just for the lender to purely lend in Bitcoin, for example, as opposed to going into their local currency? Yes, there is. So both the investors and the borrowers on our platform can also use Bitcoin directly. And actually some of our borrowers, for example, do not want to have the loan paid out to their bank account, but they want to take Bitcoin directly because they in turn may have a supplier that's in a distant location where in turn the payment would take a long time, would be expensive. And so they would pay the supplier directly with Bitcoin. In, in, in Europe, for example, we have, a, we have a lot of online sellers as customers. And it's very common that the European online sellers are sourcing their products in Asia and in, in China and Taiwan and the Philippines and many other Asian countries. And so obviously sending money from Europe to Asia is also expensive and time consuming. And so in some cases they actually take crypto directly. They've already agreed with their supplier that the supplier will accept Bitcoin as a payment method. And so when they take out the loan, they immediately use those funds in order to pay their supplier in Asia and they don't even convert back to fiat in between those transactions. What do you do regarding the volatility of Bitcoin, especially in the case of a Bitcoin only loan? If as you're taking out the loan or paying it back, the, the value of Bitcoin is going up and down by 10 or 20 percent. How do you handle something like that? So the loans are either U.S. dollar or euro denominated, even if the borrower would take Bitcoin directly without converting into local currency. Of course, during the time when the borrower or the investor holds Bitcoin, they are exposed to the exchange rate fluctuation. But through the integration with exchanges, we have reduced the amount of time that someone would hold Bitcoin to a minimum, which effectively is the transaction time until a Bitcoin transaction gets confirmed. And so through that, we have really reduced the amount of time and by that, took out most of the risk that you would have. Of course, in those cases that I just described where the borrower does not have the loan paid out to their bank account, which means that they 
hold Bitcoin for longer than just the transaction time. In that case, they are exposed to the exchange rate fluctuation. But then these are people who are typically very well familiar with Bitcoin and who are aware of the risks. And then in most cases, they would also, once they receive the email, congratulations, your loan got funded, they would take those BTC and pay the supplier very quickly without waiting too long, without being exposed for a long time to the exchange rate fluctuation. So this is something obviously that we need to cope with. And in effect, you just need to make sure that users are holding Bitcoin for a very short amount of time in order not to expose them to the exchange rate risk. So if I understand correctly, Radko, what you're saying there is that during a time of a lender actually processing through their funds, whether that's from like USD and converting into BTC into Bitcoin, and the person actually receiving this, there's such a short period of time, you've sped up that process that the amount of exposure that they get to the exchange rate is usually nominal. And is there any edge cases where the exposure, even though in a short period of time, can actually be quite dramatic in terms of for larger lending like amounts, where would you, would Bitbond ever take on some of that exposure for the lender, or is it always just managed in in the way that you previously said? So historically, there have been a few cases where during this short transaction period, the price moved significantly so that it had an impact either on the borrower or the investor. And formally, we are not required to make up for the difference that comes from the price change. But since this happens so rarely, in those few cases where it did happen, we actually told the customer, well, we'll cover the difference for you so that you have a good customer experience because this is a very unusual or, or rare scenario. And we just want you to have a good customer experience and we'll cover the difference. But this has been perhaps a handful of cases where the price change was so significant that it made a substantial financial impact on, on one of our customers. Earlier, you mentioned that you were seeing a lot of transactions between Asia and Europe, where the goods would be in Asia and the, the buyers would be in Europe. Are there certain locales that you see leveraging this platform at a higher rate than others? Like, do you see certain countries more often than others on your platform? Well, we, we see demand nearly equally across Europe, Africa, India, Philippines. So some of the English speaking Asian countries and then some of the bigger uh, Latin American countries. However, we are not always able to fund every loan on our platform. The way we work is that we have retail investors as well as institutional investors funding the loans on our platform. And the institutional investors that we have who typically commit larger amounts of capital than retail investors. So the institutional investors that we have are currently focused on Europe and a certain number of African countries. And therefore, the loan volume that we originate on our platform is driven by the demand that institutional investors have and by the regions that they focus on. But this is the situation where we are today. My vision is that we bring the platform to a level 
where in all the regions where we have demand from borrowers, we will have investors who want to invest in that region. And then it will be more equal in terms of the distribution of the loan volume that we originate on our platform. So sort of building off of this idea, you've talked a lot previously about financial inclusion and the problems with the current system. Could you elaborate a little for our listeners around what you believe to be the biggest problems with our current system and maybe why you may see certain locales benefiting from this the most in terms of financial inclusion? Sure. So when when I speak about financial inclusion, it's it's primarily from the perspective of small businesses because it's what we focus on uh, at Bitbond. And of course, financial inclusion is a broader topic also on the consumer side and uh, sometimes there are gender-specific issues. But again, we are looking at it from the perspective of small business owners. And with them, there are typically two problems. In, in, in some regions, especially in, in, in many emerging markets, some of the small business owners don't have a bank account. And in that case, it's extremely hard for them to get access to formal financial services, which means, among other things, getting financing. Although this problem is, is being mitigated more and more because the bank account penetration is growing all across the world. The even bigger problem is credit scoring. In most emerging markets, credit bureaus either don't exist or by far don't have the coverage that you would be used to from the US with institutions like FICO or Experian in the UK or Schufa in Germany, which means that most consumers don't have a credit score and even less business owners have a credit score. And so even if they have a bank account and apply for a loan, for the banks, it's very hard to assess the credit worthiness of these applicants. As a result, it means that the banks have to do a relatively comprehensive credit scoring process, which is for banks mostly very manual. And that means it means high cost. And that means that for relatively small loans, it's uneconomical for the banks to do the credit scoring. And so what we have done is that we have automated the credit scoring process by using digital data that we evaluate in an automated way. And therefore, we solve this credit scoring part by automation and by using data that banks typically don't use. If someone doesn't have a bank account, we can also solve that because in that case, they simply don't get the loan withdrawn to a bank account, but they can use the Bitcoins that we pay out as a loan. However, in that case, they need to make sure to convert Bitcoins quickly or to pay their suppliers quickly with the Bitcoins that they received from the loan because of what we've just discussed earlier, where we need to make sure that they are not exposed to exchange rate fluctuations. You talked a little bit there, Radko, about how you use some various other different sources of data to evaluate credit worthiness. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. So in order to provide a credit score to the applicants on our platform. In general, we want to understand the cash flow and the liquidity situation of the business. And there are multiple ways to do that. We work with a lot of businesses that in some way have an online presence. For example, online shop owners are probably the biggest group in terms of our customers. 
And so if someone runs an online shop, they typically use either one of the big e-commerce marketplaces. In the Western world, this is typically eBay, Amazon, Etsy, or some of the other e-commerce marketplaces. And so when someone is using one of these online marketplaces, then they typically have all the data about their business in these accounts. And so we ask them to link their e-commerce account with us. And from that, we get very detailed information about the revenue of the business. And so in Africa, for example, we actually have a partnership with Jumia, which is the largest e-commerce marketplace in Africa. It's effectively the Amazon of Africa. And if someone is a Jumia seller, meaning that they run an online shop on the Jumia platform, when they apply for a loan with Bitbond, they link their Jumia account, and we can see all the orders typically of the last three years that went through that account. So we have an extremely detailed view on their revenue, and that's one core part to our credit scoring. Hmm. Now, what we also need to understand is the expenses part. And for that, if the applicants are using accounting software, then they can link their accounting software and we get access to all the accounting and the bookkeeping. If they have a bank account through which they accept payments or through which they simply store their funds, then they can also link their bank account. And we get a very detailed view also on every transaction that, that went through the account over the last 12 months. And that lets us analyze the liquidity situation of the business very well. And so these are the main types of data sources that we use in our credit scoring system. And uh, you you mentioned there's like varying levels to this, right? Connecting up your e-commerce store, connecting up your accounting software, connecting up your bank account. Uh, I feel like there's varying levels of degree that potentially the person seeking to prove their credit worthiness could manipulate various stages of that platform. I can imagine certainly with the e-commerce store, there could be grounds where people could fake transactions and push stuff through their store to make it seem like they're pulling out more volume than others. Do you have ways of tackling that? Is there more weighting towards like say, hooking up your e-commerce store's sale history versus your bank and things like that? So in general, of course, it's possible to fake data, right? What we have to make sure is that it's not economical to do it for the loan amount that you are requesting on our platform. If we take the example of an of an e-commerce account, of course, faking two or three months of revenue is relatively easy. Doing that consistently for a period for more than one year is getting hard because you have to pay fees to the platform, right? Selling on eBay, selling on Jumia is not free. You pay fees. And we also check whether most of your transactions on the platform are done with the same counterparty. And this is what you would typically do if you want to fake transactions, right? You would pick two or three people that collude with you and then where you send transactions back and forth because you want to sort of keep the money in your own system, right? You don't, you don't want to do real transactions. And therefore, the number of counterparties in those transactions will be limited. And that's something that we are able to see and we actually check for that in order to mitigate fraud. I see. Okay. And 
all of this data that, that you're gathering across all of these different companies to help understand and determine creditworthiness, benefits from like financial inclusion point of view, how are you currently storing that data? Is that something else that you're leveraging a blockchain for or is that stored within central servers or in the cloud? Like, is that something else that you're using more innovative technology to solve for? We're not using blockchain storage technologies for this. Uh, we are using cloud servers for that. But we have taken very comprehensive measures to store this data in the safest way possible. For example, these servers are disconnected from the internet. And in order to get read access to that, there's only very limited kinds of ways how to get access to that data. So that if our systems were compromised, it's still extremely hard to get access to that data because what you're implying here in my view and what is also correct is that we get access to a lot of very sensitive data and we have to make sure that this kind of data doesn't get compromised. And so we have chosen the systems that we use for storing this data purely under the perspective of what is the most secure way to store that data. Got you. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, myself and Austin, We've talked quite a lot around the security of data, and I think it's such a fundamental kind of cornerstone of all the conversations that are happening around blockchain technology. So yeah, I'm, I've seen a few projects that are specifically focused around this whole idea of like creditworthiness and trying to build out this bigger picture of identity on the blockchain. So I didn't know whether you were you were focused on that from a product point of view. I'm assuming you've probably got your hands full with Bitcoin right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we are observing what's happening in the space, of course, but at the same time, our platform has grown to a certain scale where we need to have systems that are 100% reliable. And I think some of the blockchain-based solutions that are out there are really, really exciting, but at least the ones that I am aware of so far haven't reached enough scale and and haven't proven their reliability enough and being a startup ourselves to be fair we cannot afford to provide testing to systems right mm -hmm. we need to make sure that the external resources that we use are 100 reliable and are already tested so perhaps in two to three years from now blockchain-based solutions for data storage for identity will be so advanced that you know we will know that we can take them off the shelf and just use them the way they are without further testing and they will be reliable enough so we can just start using them but today we don't see that being here yet well that would be that would be pretty great i think that's something that i, I think we all want to <laughs> to be able to have from an accessibility point of view yeah agree when you're looking at amazon and, and ebay seller histories i was curious if you're just saying like oh good based on the loan amount that they want and their history this seems good to us we can do it so it's just sort of like general buckets that you put people into or if you're like actually saying oh this consumer they have like a 730 score so the outcome of our credit scoring is not a binary yes or no decision but it's actually a default probability which obviously is a continuous measure between zero to 100%, right? And therefore, it's a measure that allows us to categorize the applicants into different risk brackets. Great. 
I know that you're also in the process of preparing for an ICO with Bitbond. Can you tell us a little about how your ICO is structured and what purpose it's looking to serve? Sure. So we are planning to launch a security token in Europe. Probably it will be one of the first security tokens that will comply with standard securities law. The security token will provide us with enough capital to further fuel the growth on our platform. So part of those funds will be invested directly into loans on Bitbond. And then about half of the proceeds will be used for that. And then the other half of the proceeds will be used in order to provide more funding to Bitbond directly as a platform. And that will be done so that the token holders that are holding the security token will also participate in the economic success of Bitbond as a platform. And from, from a sort of security law perspective, the token is a bond, which means that there's also a repayment obligation. So this will be a token that actually has a maturity. The token will be valid for 10 years. And after 10 years, we'll pay the principal back to the investors plus a variable component that comes on top of the interest of that token. Okay, and when the when the repayment is made, is the token burned or like how how does the dynamic of this work in terms of a token that is also structured like a bond? So first of all, there are recurring interest payments. Our current thinking is that we will pay quarterly interest to the token holders. And then at maturity, which is 10 years after the token has been issued, we take the tokens back. So everyone who holds a Bitbond token in 10 years after the ICO will be able to come back to us and say, well, I'm giving back the token. Please give me back the principal. We're planning to denominate one token as one euro face value. And so if you buy one token for one euro today, you will be earning the interest payments throughout the lifetime. And then at, at maturity, you can give the token back. We'll give you the equivalent of one euro plus a variable component. Okay. So why do this through a token and not through kind of a more traditional bond offering or some kind of like equity investment or an existing kind of financial instrument that's been used regularly before why do this through an ico because this the reason why i ask is it, it feels very different to a lot of other icos out there from the the way that this is structured sure so that's a perfectly valid question um there are a few good reasons to to do that through an ico if we were a a conventional bond the costs would be higher because we would need a custodian bank which is holding the, the bonds actually for the investors. We would need a settlement system, which in Europe is typically Clearstream. And all of these parties that would need to be involved cost money. So it would increase the, the cost for us as an issuer. And the prospectus that, that we will be filing for will be a EU-level prospectus, which means that it follows certain standards on EU level, and we can proactively distribute this token in all of the EU to retail investors. And if we did a conventional bond offering, we would also be allowed to do that. But from a technical perspective, it would be way harder to get access because all the banks of, of those people who want to subscribe to that bond would need to support that offering, when most cases would not happen. Okay. 
as a result, the investor base is much bigger. Right, I see. So really, this is the token is just an instrument, really, to reduce costs, make things a hell of a lot easier from a process point of view. And I'm assuming you are you tapping into like smart? Are you building in smart contracts for like the the dividend payouts and things like that as well into this? Or yes, we do because we need to make sure that the interest payments arrive at the token holders, and that's something that will actually be part of the smart contract. Got it. Right. Okay. And do you have any uh, specific goals, limits in terms of how much you're looking to raise? Is there like a cap in terms of the amount of funding you're looking to raise from, from the ICO? So our goal is to raise 10 million euros or more. The cap is at 100 million. But the good thing is that there's not a dilution in that sense because this is a debt instrument and therefore the more capital there is available the more successful our platform will be and in turn the more interest we can pay to the token holders right so kind of shooting for 10 million but the the cap is as much as a 100 million correct okay great well good luck (laughs) good luck with it thank you Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Radko. It's really been an interesting chat, and I'm sure that our listeners have learned a bunch. Before we finish up, though, why don't you let our listeners know where they can hear more from you and the projects that you're working on? Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, uh, It was an amazing conversation with you guys. You can follow me on Twitter under Radko Albrecht. And then, of course, you can follow BitBond on Twitter at BitBond. So it's BitBond with an S at the end. And uh, that's where you will always learn the the latest news about our company, about myself, which is mostly related to BitBond, of course, uh, as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Radko. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you loved this episode and want to show both myself and Austin your appreciation, we'd love it if you could spend some of your time adding a quick review on the iTunes store or your favorite podcasting platform. You can also check out and visit us at thecoinoffering.com. Follow us on Twitter at thecoinoffering. And you know what? You want to just shoot us a quick email, chat to us, make suggestions, tell us how terrible we are. Send us an email at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. Thanks, and hope you enjoy the next episode. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.